Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. In our last episode, we left off with Sammy Davis Jr.'s breakout performance at the Los Angeles nightclub Ciro's on Oscar night 1951. Today's episode is all about the 1950s, a decade which would begin with no visible path to stardom for a black man in Hollywood, and end in a somewhat different place, with Sammy as one of three multi-talented men who emerged as success stories. In 1951, just four years after being forced to file for bankruptcy, Dean Martin, in collaboration with Jerry Lewis, was voted the second most bankable star in movies, behind only John Wayne. Martin would dominate the box office for the full decade, first with Jerry, and then without him. Today we'll talk about how and why the Martin and Lewis partnership was initially so successful, and how it fell apart. First, we'll catch up with Sammy right after that triumphant gig at Ciro's, and track how he approached the problem of being a phenomenally talented black man in an entertainment world that seemed to prefer white mediocrity. Who knows when or even if that would have changed, had a brush with death not put the eyes of the world on Sammy. Join us, won't you, for part three of Sammy and Dino. After the triumph at Ciro's in the spring of 1951, Sammy decided he wanted more than ever seemed to be in store for him, working as part of Will Mastin's act. So he hired a publicity agent named Jess Rand to try to change his prospects. What were the prospects for Sammy at this time? American society in the early 1950s was, as a rule, extremely segregated, and Black performers had limited opportunities to break through to white audiences. Almost half a decade before the first hit singles of Little Richard and Chuck Berry, in 1951, Tommy Edwards became the first black singer to chart at number one on the Billboard Top 100, 
with mild slow dance single, It's All in the Game. And Nat King Cole and Louis Armstrong made the charts that year, too. 1951 was also the year that the radio show Amos and Andy, which consisted of a kind of audio blackface in which white actors performed demeaning impersonations of black characters, transitioned to television. The Amos and Andy TV show had a black cast, but the actors were directed to perform like the white men from the radio show, which led to protests from the NAACP. The year before, the hit radio show Beulah, starring Ethel Waters, had made its transition to television, but the visual element only made the radio show's mammy stereotypes seem more literal. In terms of movies, Hollywood's attitude towards casting black performers, let alone allowing them to star alongside white performers, was in flux. Lena Horne's time as MGM's token black star had come and gone, and had consisted mostly of starring parts in all black musicals, and glorified cameos in films with mostly white casts, which got cut out of the movies for exhibition in the South. In 1951, she had lost the part of a black woman in the musical film Showboat to her friend Ava Gardner, a white woman who could not sing. What happened with Showboat, which was a movie partially about the racism faced by a black woman romantically involved with a white man, was a good example of why the situation for a star like Horn seemed so impossible at the beginning of the decade. The production code, which censored movies, still barred the depiction of interracial relationships. So even when that was the actual subject of a movie, both members of the couple would have to be performed by players of the same race. This was one factor. Another was that the studios, all run by white men, assumed the bulk of their audiences were white and that white audiences didn't want to see stories about black people. At a time when overall box office was declining due to the competition for eyeballs presented by television, the studios were grateful to be making money producing big epics about white greatness, like Quo Vadis, the number one grossing film of 1951, not to mention Pian's to stupidity like the enormously successful Martin and Lewis movies, which we'll get to later in this episode. The men in power wanted to believe that racially, nothing was broken, and that it would be bad business to go looking for things to fix. At the same time, there were now more white producers who were trying to change this paradigm, who were interested in making movies featuring black actors in substantive, non-subservient roles. Even though most of the movies that came out of this drive used their black characters as tools of enlightenment for their white characters and or a white audience, even making that kind of movie would prove to be a daring stance, as this was also the age of the blacklist, during which support for civil rights or opposition to segregation were enough to get a writer, actor, or director blacklisted, whether they were white or black. In a few years, Sammy's friend from the Brill Building, Harry Belafonte, would find major success in clubs, as a recording artist, and later in movies and on TV. 
But his stardom was a few years off when Sammy started looking toward engineering his own breakout. Another actor who would make a major impact by the end of the decade was Sidney Poitier, but only after several years of starts and stops. Poitier, born in the Bahamas, had quit school at 13, and within three years, he had moved to New York by himself. By the time he was 22, Poitier had built a modest stage resume. When he was cast as the lead, a doctor, in the Joseph Mankiewicz film No Way Out, he lied and said he was 27, because that's how old he assumed even a young doctor would have to be. 20th Century Fox flew him out to Los Angeles for the shoot and put him up at a hotel in Westwood, where, for the first time in his life, he was, as he later put it, living exclusively among white people with no other blacks around. It was, he wrote, like being a visitor in a foreign culture, on the alert and at the ready 24 hours a day. No Way Out was released in 1950, but it was highly controversial and widely censored. Fox didn't even try to release it in the South. Poitier's career progress would be halted when, after filming his next movie, Cry the Beloved Country, in 1952, he was blacklisted due to his friendships with actors Canada Lee and Paul Robeson and his advocacy of opportunities for Black actors at union meetings in New York. A few years later, he was offered the part of a high school student in Blackboard Jungle, but the studio asked Poitier to sign a loyalty oath, meaning loyalty to the production and the right-wing patriotism then in vogue. Poitier asked himself, is the government going to sign a loyalty oath in terms of my rights? He decided not to sign it. He showed up on set on his start day anyway, and soon learned he had the tacit approval of director Richard Brooks, who raised the issue of the oath with Poitier and then offered this plain piece of advice. Fuck em. After the shoot, Poitier was still floundering and considered giving up acting to become a taxi driver until the Blackboard Jungle opened in 1955 and made him an undeniable movie star. This was the climate in which Sammy Davis Jr. decided to try to conquer mainstream show business, which meant white show business. In 1952, the white press had to be told why they needed to pay attention to a black act, and they needed to hear it from a white man. That's why Sammy needed publicist Jess Rand. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Working for the Will Mastin Trio, Rand became a first-hand observer of the challenges faced in the early 1950s by three black men making a living on the road. Still, there were parts of the country where the only place that would serve them food was the Greyhound station. 
Still, there were times when they couldn't get a hotel room and would have to sleep in the car. Even with just driving, that car got stopped by police constantly. Sometimes the cops would not just accept bribes to leave them alone, they would forcibly take them. In St. Louis, an officer demanded to see Sam Sr.'s wallet, took $50 out, and then let them all go on their way. Though all three members of the trio pitched in to pay Rand's salary, the fact that it had been Sammy's decision to bring him on put the growing distance between he and the rest of the Wilmaston trio in sharp relief. It had taken nearly 20 years, but now the kid was steering the ship, and his elders were indisputably along for the ride. This was clear to most observers. In one of Rand's early coups, he got Walter Winchell, still a powerful columnist, to go see the show. I don't know what he's doing with those two older men, Winchell said of Sammy, which was really saying something. Winchell was a veteran of the same vaudeville era as Sam Sr. and Maston. Winchell gave Sammy positive coverage, even after grousing to Rand that he was suspicious of the younger Davis because, quote, he's always chasing white women. Always may have been an exaggeration, at least at this point. But around this time at a Jersey club, Sammy met Helen Gallagher, a blonde chorus girl who would become his first serious girlfriend. Sammy and Helen were careful about being seen together in public. When he took her out, they'd rarely be alone together, as there was safety in numbers. Once, he took her whole chorus line out to a Broadway show, and bystanders assumed this black man with a dozen white girls was their chauffeur. Sammy struggled to find support for the romance, even amongst friends. After Milton Berle met Helen, he told Sammy, she's a nice girl, but you two will never be accepted and she's going to ruin your career. Helen Gallagher has talked about Sammy's low self-esteem when they were together, how he'd look in the mirror and call himself ugly, how he idolized the strapping white guys he hung out with, like Jeff Chandler, Tony Curtis, and Sinatra. She watched Sammy buy gifts for these guys, gifts Sammy couldn't afford, gifts a guy like Frank Sinatra didn't need. Sammy was trying to secure their friendship with gifts, Helen thought. In what would become a lifelong pattern, Davis started spending money to prove that he could afford it, even though, a lot of the time, he really couldn't. It was a way of showing to the world, and to himself, that he belonged in a group of people perceived to be rich and famous. When Sammy and Helen broke up, she tried to give him back all the jewelry he had given her, and when Sammy wouldn't accept it, she took it back to the jeweler and asked him to credit Sammy's tab. He owed thousands of dollars. In at least one other romance of Sammy's from around this time, jewelry may have served another purpose. If it could buy love, great. If not, at least it could buy publicity. In late 1953, the trio was performing at the Fairmont in San Francisco. Another performer in town 
was singer-slash-dancer Eartha Kitt, who was touring with the hit review New Faces, co-written by Mel Brooks. A few years earlier, Orson Welles had seen Kitt's nightclub act in Paris and had cast her in his production of Faust. Their love affair, on stage and off, was considered a scandal in the age of tabloid panic over miscegenation. Romantic or sexual relationships between Black people and white people were still illegal in almost half of the United States. When she arrived in San Francisco, Kit was a hot star. Not only was New Faces a hit, but her now classic recording of Santa Baby was at that moment rising on the Billboard charts. Sammy asked her out for Chinese food, and he was stunned by the attention she got just walking down the street. I've been in this business since I was four, Sammy told Eartha. Everybody knows you, and no one recognizes me. Later, he vowed, I'm going to be bigger than you if it kills me. They were a mismatch. Kit tried to take Sammy to museums, to get him to read serious authors like Proust. Sammy just wanted to photograph her, to watch her walk so he could perfect his imitation of her. Convinced he wasn't serious boyfriend material, Kit took a job in New York and left Sammy behind in San Francisco. He followed her and cornered her in the bathroom of her stage dressing room with a diamond ring. She reluctantly accepted it, but said she'd have to get back to him with an answer to his proposal. The next day, gossip columnist Earl Wilson reported that Eartha was wearing Sammy's engagement ring. Kit was taken aback. Had Sammy called the gossip columnist to get publicity? Had he given her the ring to get publicity? Eartha told Sammy she wouldn't marry him, and she was keeping the ring. Jess Rand had to work his magic to get it back. The Will Mastin Trio made their national TV debut on The Eddie Cantor Show in February 1952, with Cantor introducing Sammy as one of the greatest hunks of talent I've ever seen in my life. They were invited back to Cantor's show again and again. There was something about Sammy's blend of talents that seemed perfect for TV. Except, nowhere on TV in 1952 was a black man allowed to headline a show, unless they were playing into demeaning stereotypes. Finally, in 1953, after two solid years of protests and pressure on advertisers, Amos and Andy was canceled. That same year, Sammy Davis Jr. was contracted for his own TV show. Well, sort of. Abe Lastfogel of William Morris had only wanted to sign Sammy. The network, ABC, had only wanted Sammy. But technically, Sammy was under contract to Will Mastin. So any production starring Sammy Jr. also had to include roles for Mastin and Sammy Sr. A script was drawn up for a comic variety show more or less about the trio's lives on the road. But Sammy's older partners were vaudevillians and extremely set in their ways. They weren't great at learning lines or finding marks for the camera. Those who saw the pilot said it was really something, 
and a total break from the stereotypes predominant on television at the time, it showed three talented Black men in evening wear, living lives that were legitimately cosmopolitan compared to Amos and Andy and Beulah. But advertisers didn't get it. It made them nervous. And without a sponsor, ABC decided not to move forward with the show. American television was probably just not ready for a show built around a virtuosic talent like Sammy, who happened to be a black man. But everyone began telling Sammy that the problem was his co-stars. The pressure intensified for him to leave behind his father and the man he considered his uncle and go solo. He was still thinking it over in the fall of 1954, when the Will Maston trio was hired to play the frontier in Vegas and, for the first time, to stay at the hotel and enjoy its amenities like any other guest. Black performers had continued to come back to the desert town, despite the Jim Crow conditions, because even if they weren't treated like white stars, they could make a lot more money playing to a white audience there than they could in even the biggest predominantly black venues in big cities like New York. Harry Belafonte wrote that by the mid-1950s, it was a question of making 25 to 50,000 a week in Vegas versus maybe 5,000 a week at the Apollo in Harlem. The only hitch was that Sammy was already booked to record a song in Los Angeles. The gig had come through his friend Jeff Chandler, who had found a niche playing both cowboys and Indians in mid-range westerns and was now launching a musical career. When Sammy was in LA, Jeff brought him along to every party and introduced him to all of his friends. Jeff was in a position of power at his studio, Universal, but try as he might, he couldn't get his friend on-screen work in movies. But when Chandler co-wrote with Henry Mancini the theme song to the Tony Curtis picture Six Bridges to Cross, the studio did let him hire Sammy to do the vocal. So, one late night after the show, Sammy got in his Cadillac convertible to make the 300-mile drive. He slept most of the way while his valet, Charlie, took the wheel. Then they switched. Nobody's invented booze that'll give you a kick like the first few times you drive your first Cadillac convertible, Davis later wrote. Sammy's new hit single, Hey There, came on the radio as he approached San Bernardino, just about an hour from Los Angeles. Hey there, you with the stars in your eyes. Just then, a car started to U-turn in front of him, right on the highway. Sammy swerved to get out of its way, and a car driving the opposite direction plowed into him. His face hit the steering wheel, which had a little cone mounted in its center as part of its design. After the collision, he thought he was dead. He must be. Then he realized he couldn't be dead. He was in too much pain and he could see his hand moving. Maybe he was okay. He turned around and saw that Charlie's face was full of blood. He went to help him, and Charlie tried to say something, tried to communicate what he was seeing, but his mouth was full of broken teeth, and he couldn't get the words out. 
He could only moan and point. Here's another excerpt from Yes, I Can. As I ran my hand over my cheek, I felt my eye hanging there by a string. Frantically, I tried to stuff it back in like if I could do that, it would stay there and nobody would know. It would be like nothing had happened. The doors were going to close again. The people who'd been nice when I was somebody would turn away from me. They're going to hate me again. We'll return to Sammy's story later in this episode. First, circa 1952, Martin and Lewis are the biggest nightclub act in the world and two of the most bankable stars in movies. Too bad they were starting to hate one another. My friend Irma was not what you would call a critic's picture, but the film's reviews did single out one member of Martin and Lewis as a scene stealer. And it wasn't Martin. In the New York Times, Bosley Crowther called Jerry Lewis the funniest thing in the film and dismissed Dean as offering, quote, only standard glamour. The box office was strong enough that Hal Wallace immediately rushed a sequel into production. My Friend Irma Goes West opened in May 1950, and it flipped the power dynamic from the first film. The reviews had convinced Wallace that Jerry needed to be moved center stage. The movie included a scene which feels like a direct answer to the valet parking bit from the first movie. French sex symbol Corinne Calvet handpicks Jerry over Dean to co-star with her in a movie. I also want the young man. Oh, I'm awfully sorry. No more of this Hollywood business for me. Right, honey? Right, Steve. I do not mean you. I mean uh, that wonderful young personality. He's, he's magnificent. She can't mean Seymour? Me? Is this on a level? You will be wonderful. Well, I always knew I was a great actor. Camel boy, I shan't forget you. Here, you should be my stand-in. Press my clothes and do various small things around the studio. Yes, you shall all benefit. And you, my French beauty, I will love you and kiss you. Love you and kiss you. Ma. Love you and kiss you. But this should get paid. As Martin and Lewis became bona fide movie stars, demand to see their nightclub shows only grew. At their peak, they were paid $10,000 a night. This is in contrast to Sinatra, who was at the lowest point in his own career at the same time and whose live engagement salary was $10,000 a week. With all his success, Jerry was feeling overworked and undersatisfied. On stage, he had written the act, and Dean had completed it through improvisation. On the first few movies, they had no such creative input. And as they went into production of the fourth Martin and Lewis movie, Jerry was feeling, quote, like a streetwalker on Saturday night. He wanted to understand how movies were made and play a greater role in making them. So on the set of That's My Boy in 1951, he started snooping around the various departments, asking questions. This is how he learned filmmaking. He decided he wanted to become a director. 
1952, Jerry and Dean were at the peak of their partnership. For the second year in a row, two of their films were amongst the 10 highest grocers of the year. They should have been enjoying it. Instead, they were broke. Their business manager, Abby Greshler, had signed them to bad contracts and funneled their profits to Greshler's business partners in Chicago. Business partners in Chicago being a euphemism for gangsters. They were able to drop Greshler and sign with MCA, thus turning their financial fortunes around. Still, most of the money they were making came from those under-the-table nightclub payouts and could be conveniently hidden when necessary, such as when Dean wanted to claim poverty to get out of paying his first wife alimony. In late 1950, Dean's lawyers made the case that his assets totaled negative $4,837.14, the amount he had been advanced on future royalties by Capitol Records. This may have been true, but between advances and cash payouts, Dean didn't lack for walking around money. While the experience of near bankruptcy made Jerry want to take a closer look at how they were running their business, Dean felt the opposite. He wanted Jerry to take care of everything so that he could have more time to pursue what he really cared about. As Herman Hover of Zeros put it, quote, he was a good sex man, but his big interest was golf. If you played golf, you'd understand. It's like a disease. Martin also let Jerry take care of the gangsters who came to their shows and fawned all over Dean, partially because they wanted a piece of the act and partially because they just liked him. According to Jerry, Dean was a master of mob diplomacy. He'd play dumb and say, talk to the Jew. Jerry managed to figure out his own way for handling the Chicago boys. In March 1952, he and Dean hosted a telethon to raise money for the New York Cardiac Hospital. Jerry's telethons to benefit the Muscular Dystrophy Associations of America would later become a Labor Day tradition. But this first telethon was a joint effort, and Dean and Jerry shared in the effusive praise that resulted. They raised over a million dollars in just over 16 hours, and the New York Times called it, quote, a remarkable performance, theatrically, financially, physically, and psychologically. The paper also marveled at the, quote, mass hypnosis in watching the entertainment world's most successful act of the moment stay on its feet night and day, and at the children who emptied their piggy banks to help the hospital and clogged suburban telephone lines with their calls. The paper did not mention what Jerry bragged about years later, that some of the biggest donors were the Chicago mob family, the Vachettis. To quote Jerry, there's never been a telethon where I don't get very, very heavy duty checks from that family every year. By that point, boss Charlie Fischetti was deceased. Nine days after agreeing to testify to the Senator Kefauver's committee investigation on organized crime, he dropped dead of a heart attack. His obituary in a Chicago newspaper referred to Fischetti as, quote, 
a gunman, goon, and muscle man who stopped at nothing to acquire a dollar. If Jerry's charities let Chicago mobsters launder their souls in secret, it performed a very public version of that service for Dean and Jerry, this lowbrow, ethnic comedy troupe who, in reality, were both compulsive adulterers, daily gamblers, and deeply involved with organized criminals. But on that telethon, they looked like angels. As the Times put it, they gave an astonishing demonstration of patience, understanding, and personal dignity. This may have been the last truly collaborative moment Martin and Lewis enjoyed. As Jerry moved to the center of the act, Dean was pushed to the sidelines. Dean was not the kind of guy who would fight for the spotlight, and Jerry couldn't handle it when his partner got it by accident. According to Norman Lear, who worked with Martin and Lewis on a TV special, Jerry's stomach would mysteriously start hurting every time Dean got a laugh, even in rehearsal, and work would have to be put on hold for Jerry's doctor to take a look at him. When they were making Three Ring Circus, their 12th starring vehicle in five years, Dean was so checked out of the process, and Jerry was so involved, that the script treated Martin's character almost as an afterthought. Dean read the screenplay and correctly assessed that it was Jerry's movie, and that he had been all but sidelined. There were rewrites, but they weren't able to correct the imbalance, and Dean filmed under duress. For the first time, Jerry felt that his partner might actually just walk away. By the time they showed up to make their next film, You're Never Too Young, the relationship between Dean and Jerry had fully disintegrated. Dean failed to show for the junket and premiere of the movie, taking Gene to Hawaii instead. Greeting the assembled premiere night audience on his own, Jerry couldn't hide his frustrations with his partner. Through tears, he asked the journalists in the audience to give him a break. Maybe the lawyers wouldn't want me to talk about the problem, Jerry said. So I want to thank you for saving me the embarrassment by not asking questions I can't answer. After that, Jerry begged his agent, Lou Wasserman, to help him dissolve the Martin and Lewis partnership. That was easier said than done. Neither Paramount nor Dean wanted to give up the cash cow that Martin and Lewis represented. Implying that he wasn't the one being the emotional basket case, Dean wrote a letter to the studio, insisting, quote, I'm ready, willing, and able to go back to work. They made three more movies together. Shirley MacLaine starred in the best of them, Artists and Models, directed by Frank Tashlin. She was immediately drawn to Dean. When a man fears intimacy, I'm interested, she later wrote. I try to open him up. She had about as much luck opening Dean up as anyone else, but as an astute judge of people, McLean was able to gain some perspective on what was happening. He felt irrelevant and undervalued, she wrote, but because he withheld so many of his feelings, he couldn't confront anyone about it. 
Not Jerry, not the director, not Hal Wallace, not Gene, not even himself. He was a prisoner of his own growing rage and the control he had been taught to exert over it. The final straw came one day on set. Reports vary as to which set. Dean's biographer Nick Toshis places it at the end of filming what would be their last movie, Hollywood or Bust. Shirley MacLaine says she overheard it, and she was only in Artists and Models. In any case, apparently understanding that he had pushed too far, Jerry approached Dean in hopes of some kind of reconciliation. Dean was way beyond that. He said, anytime you want to call it quits, just let me know. Jerry, what would I ever do without you? Dean, fuck yourself for starters. This unlocked something in Jerry, and he started trying to get Dean to acknowledge their special bond together and to agree with him that neither of them would be as good without the other. We love each other, no? Love was the wrong angle to take with Dean Martin. Talk about love all you want, Dean said. To me, you're nothing but a fucking dollar sign. The steering wheel on Sammy's Cadillac had a cone right in its center, a decorative flourish of a horn button. On the impact of the crash, Sammy's head swung forward, and that cone gouged out his left eye. With all the blood, no one on the scene realized he was Sammy Davis Jr. Under the assumption that he was just some black guy, he was taken to the worst hospital in the area. That hospital was overcrowded, and they didn't have a bed for him. As soon as they figured out who he was, they moved him to a better hospital, where he lay in the hallway on a stretcher until a specialist arrived, because that hospital couldn't find a bed for him either. As soon as they heard about the accident, Jeff Chandler and Jess Rand sped to San Bernardino. The immediate worry was to make sure Sammy wasn't further mistreated or neglected because of his race. The specialist broke the news to Sammy. His eye was lost. The only good news was that his leg, which had also been injured in the crash, would fully recover. He would be able to dance again, if anyone wanted a one-eyed dancer. Sam Sr. and Will Maston sat by Sammy's bed in agony, watching him grope for a glass of water. If his career was over, their careers were over, and they were vaudevillians. Performing was life. They feared it was a death sentence for all three of them. After Jeff Chandler and Jess Rand, Jerry Lewis was Sammy's next visitor, followed by Eddie Cantor, who brought Sammy a necklace with a Hebrew star charm. Sammy received 500 telegrams. A club owner from Philadelphia volunteered to pay all of Sammy's medical bills. The hospital had to tell the local florist to stop accepting orders for flower arrangements. Any more flowers in Sammy's room sucking out the oxygen, and he'd suffocate. Most of the flowers were sent by strangers. The accident, the brush with death, had made Sammy more famous than he'd ever been in his life. 
His accident had knocked Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds off of the gossip pages. But all of this seemed like small potatoes to Sammy, who was waiting for Frank Sinatra. He asked his nurse if, amongst those 500 telegrams, there had been one from Frank Sinatra. She shook her head no. Sammy believed he knew why Frank was absent. In his autobiography, Sammy describes discovering in his hospital bed that Confidential Magazine had published an expose on Sammy's supposed affair with Ava Gardner. The allegations were based on photos that had been taken of the pair for Our World magazine. In a staged photo shoot for that magazine aimed at the Black community, Sammy had dressed like Santa Claus and Ava had perched on his lap, as if telling him what she wanted for Christmas. After getting the staged image, the photographer had hung around while Sammy and Ava had drinks, and he had captured the lubricated friends with their arms around one another. Sammy had personally called Ava and asked her to participate in this shoot, perhaps understanding both that she thought the racial status quo was absurd and liked to shake it up, and also that she was on the outs with her studio, MGM, and wouldn't have anyone telling her not to do this incendiary thing. The photos had appeared in our world without attracting the notice of the white media, until Confidential published them in their March 1955 issue. In Yes, I Can, Davis claims to remember his father bringing the magazine into his hospital room. But that seems unlikely, given that Sammy was in the hospital in November 1954, and that issue of Confidential was dated March 1955. It's possible that Sammy is conflating memories. Maybe his father brought him the magazine another time, and or maybe someone came into Sammy's hospital room and told him that Confidential was working on the story. It appears that Howard Hughes, a part-time Vegas resident and sometime Ava Gardner suitor, knew about the Confidential piece far in advance and had given Ava a heads up. Whether or not Sammy and Ava actually did have an affair, which both denied, although Sammy's agent, Arthur Silber Jr., told Gardner's biographer, Lee Server, that he believed that they did. Confidential, a publication with an essentially racist agenda, knew that publishing a story about this affair would hurt Sammy in more ways than one. At a moment when the national mood was remarkably sympathetic towards him, the idea that he was sleeping with a famous white woman would change a lot of minds in the other direction. But more importantly, the idea that he was sleeping with this specific white woman, the ex-wife of Frank Sinatra, would poison the relationship between Sammy and Frank, a relationship Sammy cherished on a personal level and believed had been crucial to getting him to where he was professionally. Sammy's autobiography claims that when Sinatra failed to so much as contact him immediately after the accident, Sammy lay in bed feeling sure that Frank believed he had slept with Ava and had thus turned against him. And then, suddenly, Frank showed up. He didn't send a telegram, he didn't call, 
He just drove all the way out to San Bernardino. Frank Sinatra, who just a few months earlier had won an Oscar and who was now one of the top recording artists in the world, again. Only Sammy's closest friends and supporters had made the trip. The fact that he was there, this must mean that Frank really cared. Actually, Frank hadn't thought about coming until Cindy Bitterman, a sometime girlfriend of Frank's who had a treasured friendship with Sammy and had herself driven out to the hospital as soon as she heard, called Sinatra and chewed him out for his absence. She told him that every day he wasn't there hurt Sammy more and more. Frank yelled at Cindy suspiciously. What was she doing in San Bernardino? Cindy told him that he better offer Sammy a place to recuperate if he knew what was good for him. Sinatra responded by getting drunk. The next day, he showed up at Sammy's bedside and told Davis that he could stay at Frank's place in Palm Springs for as long as he liked. Sammy spent a total of eight days in the hospital. He walked out on shaky legs, a patch over his left eye. He'd eventually get a glass prosthetic. Jerry Lewis went with him to the fitting and assured him the glass eye looked swell. He'd never looked better. If the prosthetic looks so good, Sammy fired back, maybe you should have it done. Sammy's glass eyes were actually quite sophisticated. He was able to order one that was slightly red so that it would match his biological eye when hung over. He spent several weeks in Palm Springs at Frank's house. That Christmas, Sinatra brought Sammy home to New Jersey to meet his mother. When Sammy returned to Los Angeles, he moved into a new house, his first, rented for him by Jess Rand because no one would rent a house in the Hollywood Hills to a black man in 1954. No one could deny that, when challenged to do so, Sinatra had shown Sammy extreme generosity. But people close to Sammy, including Cindy Bitterman and Jess Rand, wondered if, in his traumatic state, and his relief that Frank hadn't confronted him over the Ava rumors, Sammy had twisted Frank's generosity into something odd. He had always idolized Frank, thought of him as a mentor and benefactor, but also wanted to compete with him. When Sammy had recorded Hey There, that hit single that had been playing in the car when he crashed, Sammy had turned to his publicist and said, when Frank hears this, he'll eat his heart out. But now it seemed like something more extreme was happening. His friends noticed that Davis seemed to be picking up Frank's habits. When Frank started wearing a white raincoat, Sammy started wearing a white raincoat. He held his cigarette the way Frank held his cigarette. He worked Frank's slang into his own speech. He'd even practice walking like Frank. Sammy had impersonated him on stage, and now, it seemed like he was trying to impersonate Frank in real life. Harry Belafonte analyzed this phenomenon in his autobiography, My Song. Here's an excerpt from the My Song audiobook, read by Myron Willis. Sammy needed Frank not just for his career, 
but for his entire sense of self-worth. He constantly demeaned himself, breaking into his little black boy routine. His distress at his blackness, his looks, was forever at play. And yet, at the same time, in the aftermath of the accident, Sammy made a life decision that pointed in the opposite direction of anything he could have copied from Sinatra. He converted to Judaism. He had talked about the faith with his many Jewish friends, particularly Eddie Cantor, who had impressed on Sammy the historic parallels between Blacks and Jews. But the turning point came on Christmas 1955. Sammy woke up and went outside to see that someone had painted Merry Christmas N-word on his garage door. He went back inside his house the house he hadn't even been able to rent in his own name, feeling like there was no escaping who he was, or at least no escape from being made to feel bad about who he was. In that moment, his eyes drifted to a book on the shelf, The History of the Jews. He got stuck on one specific passage. It read, quote, The Jews would not die. Three centuries of prophetic teaching had given them an unwavering spirit of resignation and had created in them a will to live, which no disaster could crush. Sammy wished he had that unwavering spirit. He felt he needed that unwavering spirit. He began having long talks with a rabbi. The rabbi warned him, Don't do this as a publicity stunt. His friends were also skeptical. Tony Curtis said he thought Sammy's sudden attraction to Judaism was, quote, gratuitous. Was he doing it because he had been spared death? Was he doing it because he believed the stereotypes that Jews had all the power in Hollywood and that members of the tribe would stick together? Only Sammy knew for sure. The Will Mastin trio made their return to the stage at Ciro's. Everyone was there. Marilyn Monroe, Judy Garland, Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh, Bogart and Bacall, Martin and Lewis. The crowd was almost entirely white and famous. And Frank Sinatra took the stage to introduce the main attraction, the Will Mastin Trio, starring Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy sang, he danced, he did impressions of big stars sitting in the front row. He performed without stop for nearly two hours, all with a black patch over his glass eye. Then the grand finale, which was scripted but came over to everyone in the room other than Sammy and his publicist, as a big twist. He ripped off his eye patch. I don't think I need this anymore, he said, and threw it out into the crowd. Janet Lee audibly gasped. Then the rest of the room exploded. From now on, Sammy Davis Jr. would be a superstar. He'd have the kind of stardom that really almost no one of any race had. But in that decade, 
only a small handful of other Black men could come close. In our next episode, Sammy will test the power of his new celebrity by finally going solo. Dean Martin will go solo too and make some of the best movies of the 1950s in the process. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, everyone.